A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 6 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm really excited to be bringing you this new season of shows coming to you on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. I have a great lineup of fascinating conversations with incredible musicians, songwriters, guitarists, steel guitarists, drummers, composers, who knows what else. I've been having an incredible time diving deep with these folks, and I know you're going to enjoy listening. Just a reminder that this year I've taken out the short song samples through the show, as things have gotten way more complicated as far as legal use of music goes, so I'll be making an accompanying Spotify playlist to each episode, which you'll find in the episode's show notes and at the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So anytime you hear this cute little slide guitar sound, you'll know there's a track to go along with it on the playlist. We have some new sponsors this year, but continue to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription. Patreon is a monthly payment of your choice, and when you sign up for that, you get a bit of added content as well as an ad-free version of the show to listen to. If you don't feel like kicking in any dough, that's cool too, but you can help by subscribing for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just spread the word by sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff, of course, at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, many thanks to our sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know that I sent you. They are Isotope, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, and Spectra 1964. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to season six of the show. This is episode number 129. This week on the show is the great mandolin player, singer, and songwriter Sierra Hull. Sierra is an insanely insanely talented musician and it was great to have her on the show to talk about music i hope things are rolling along out there for everyone i've had a pretty good run here in the studio doing a bunch of sessions some remote stuff and uh then a few full band projects as well and mixes and stuff like that and uh i oh i also had the very thrilling debut of my pre-world war ii acoustic hawaiian band we're called the the volcano brothers and it's myself and Fats Kaplan on on uh, ukulele and Dave Jakes on bass. And we ripped it over at the Five Spot in East Nashville about a week ago. And I hope to do more of that. That was fun. The Volcano Brothers. Um, other than that, it seems like things are settle- settling down a bit into some sort of semblance of normalcy, I guess, in my life and probably other people's lives too. Less tours seem to be getting canceled. Less plans are changing in the studio and gig-wise. We had the big, crazy Americana Fest here this week in Nashville, which I saw a little bit of, but honestly, I was pretty buried in the studio for most of it, so I did not get out and about too much. I hope to change that next year. Uh, Just a reminder that the Hen House Hang that you've been hearing about through this season now has some 2023 dates, 
And I know it's a bit early for that, but we are openly starting to book spots if you're interested in that. The dates will be September 18 through the 21st, 2023. It's going to be a blast, and I hope some of you listeners might consider coming out and being a part of it in 2023. We'll learn about recording and hang out with some like-minded folks who are interested in all that fun stuff. All right, so Sierra Hull, she's a monster player. And while she's still really young, she's been making records of her own for over 15 years now. The latest one is called 25 Trips, and it came out right around the time of you-know-what. And so her touring activities were curtailed for a while, but she's back at it now in full force. And she's also been really active this year with her own band, but then also with Corey Wong and Bella Fleck being part of Bela's uh, My Bluegrass Heart shows and album. And that's a killer album. Um, I was really interested in talking to her about that project because I just kind of can't imagine how crazy that must be to be sitting in a room full of all your heroes that you grew up listening to and learning from and suddenly they're your peers and you're right there in the mix with all of them. And in the bluegrass world, that that project does not really get any heavier. It's Jerry Douglas and Brian Sutton, Sam Bush, Bela, of course, Chris Thiele, Noam Pakelny, Stuart Duncan, Billy Strings, Molly Tuttle. They're all involved. It's a great album, well worth checking out, My Bluegrass Heart. Um, Billy and Sierra and Molly kind of represent the new cats on the block, but the rest of the crew has pretty much been at the top of the heap kind of since the 80s. You know all those names, probably. Pretty crazy. Anyway, Sierra has made some amazing solo albums as well uh, with producers like Alison Krauss and Bella Fleck. And on her latest one, 25 Trips, she's co-producing with a great engineer named Shawnee Gandhi. And the album is definitely rooted in bluegrass, but it steps out into some more experimental territory as well with some killer sounds and production concepts and ideas. And the crew on this album includes Justin Moses, Victor Krauss, Brian Sutton, Paul Franklin, John O'Ricks, the great percussionist from the Wood Bros, and lots more interesting musicians. So we got to, we got to talk about how she approaches making music these days and all about how she prepares as a side person for some of the heavy gigs that she's involved in as well. She is out on tour all the time these days, and you can keep up with what she's doing and where to see her at sierrahull.com. And before we get going here, I would just like to shout out to a couple folks who made donations or signed up over at the Patreon page in the last couple weeks, Tanya Hargraves and Jamie Pinson. Many thanks, you guys. Couldn't do it without you. And um, also just a reminder that we are giving away a really cool union tube and transistor pedal. It's called the C-Verb pedal at the end of this season. And it's going to a random Patreon subscriber. So if you're already subscribed or if you subscribe before the end of this season, you'll be enrolled in that cool giveaway. And thanks to union tube and transistor for supplying that pedal. All right, let's get down to it. Enjoy my conversation with Sierra Hull. Yeah, I wondered if we could maybe just dive in and, and start talking about some of the stuff you've been doing lately and, and what's coming up. I noticed this you've got this tour coming up with Corey Wong, and I'm not clear what, what your role is exactly in that tour. Like, it, it, I, think, I think the billing that I saw said special guest, so I assume that you're sitting in with his band, and are you bringing your band out, or what, like what's happening exactly? 
Yeah, I hear you. So I'm I'm going out. And I'm going to open uh, the shows each night solo, okay. but then with some of Corey's band joining me as well. So it'll be uh. probably like a 30 minute opening slot where I'll I'll go out solo, play a couple things. My friend Eddie Barbash, who I've made a lot of music with, is, is a sax player on tour with Corey right now, and he's actually toured with me a little bit too. He's an amazing player. Um, so we have history together with playing some. So he'll come out. We'll play a few, and then. Um, a few other guys in the band will come out. So it'll kind of be like building into the evening. Okay. Then I'll hand it over to Corey. Uh, and then they'll do two sets, I think, is, is sort of the plan. And I will guest um, some on set one with mm-hmm. the band. And then, um, and then he has uh, Antoine, another uh, guest, out as well. So, um, okay. yeah, should be fun. should be a... Uh, a a blast just, you know, of an evening getting to kind of both do some of my own stuff, but also sit in with them and, and get to play some of their music as well. Yeah. I mean, that's something that's been a big part of, of your life is the collaboration aspect. And um, I wonder in that sort of situation, I'm, I'm not totally that familiar with his newest stuff. Like he's usually out with a pretty big band. Is this like a full on Corey Wong extravaganza with like big horn section and everything? It's yeah, it'll be a full on uh, party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. think the band's like, you know, six horns or four horns or something like that. Oh. I mean, it's, you know, rhythm section and, you know, drums and percussion. I think maybe four yeah. horns for this tour. But yeah, it's it's going to be going to be a party. <laughs> Does he bring a bunch of singers out with him, too? Or is it just like people in the band singing the odd song or is it all instrumental or what's his deal it's, these days? Well, I think Antoine uh, Stanley is, mm-hmm. I think, a frequent guest, or maybe he's more of a member. I think he's more just a guest with Wolfpack, which Corey is okay. as well. So they've collaborated yeah. a lot there. And so, so Antoine is, is a vocalist. And so he'll be okay. kind of joining, I think, as, as the other guests on the, the second part of the night. And, um, you know, I think I'll probably sing a little bit with them. So, yeah, there'll be some vocals, but it's all, you know, Corey's music's mostly instrumental. So yeah. I think the most of the singing uh, across the night will come from, from me or Antoine. <laughs> Instrumentally, like, how do you have to prepare for a tour like this? Is there a lot of pretty intense, like his stuff is so rhythmic and like precise. Is there a lot of, um, is there a lot of stuff for you to actually learn? Or are you kind of out there as a soloist and kind of winging your part of it with him or how do you prepare for a tour like that yeah well so he sent me a few things that i we hadn't played together yet um so it's interesting my my relationship with Corey goes back really to 2020 where we uh were both sitting at home like everybody else when all the tours canceled and and you know he's a really productive guy so he's always you know working on music and recording and so he did this project called trail songs and it was two-part eps where there was like a dusk and a dawn um version and so i was part of well he reached out to me and said hey i'm working on this and this project and really would love to collaborate with you i think this particular song mandolin would be great on would you want to you know be a featured guest on the project so i said oh yeah of course so i literally recorded my parts at home sent them back you know it's a total virtual collaboration and and then the record came out and we still hadn't actually met in person but we had oh, wow. okay, yeah. spoken to each other via zoom um so like we'd had a couple zoom meetings just like this where you know we'd kind of hung out or i i did a, a thing for um 
um, Eno Hammocks in Sierra Nevada uh, brewery during the pandemic where I interviewed a couple folks um, just for social media, basically, is kind of like a, you know, we're, none of us are at festivals right now. So here's some artists kind of hanging out and collaborating. So, so we had kind of done a few things together just through, you know, him initially reaching out for me to be part of that project. And I really loved getting to be part of that. We just had fun, you know, being able to collaborate together virtually. And then I actually only met him for the first time earlier this year. Um, he, he films this variety show type thing for YouTube and he was taping a bunch of those. So I went and, and, um, was part of that for one of the episodes. And so we wrote a tune together via zoom as part of that. So now it's like, we've got a couple things that we've actually done together. Um, I learned another one of his tunes for that particular taping that we did. And so, you know, we've already got a few things that we've played together um so some of it will just be doing that that i already know because we've already played it together or wrote it together and then there was a couple other new tunes to learn so yeah it's kind of a combination of both kind of relearning some of the stuff we either wrote or recorded together and then um you know me getting to dive in and learn a few few of his tunes that i didn't know yet so so that's a big band with probably quite a big crew and like a big just a generally large traveling party are there ner- a lot of nerves going around about just like everyone staying covid free and all that like that must be nuts these days yeah i mean i've i've been i've been doing some stuff like so i was i was out with Sturgill simpson and Bailey fleck in september and then my band for you know a whole you know, month of busy touring and, and, uh, and then diving into this. So at least I feel like, okay, I've been really used to testing, you know, frequently and wearing masks and trying to be, you know, as careful as, as possible. So I just think everybody's just kind of doing their best to be mindful of it and, you know, hoping we had one show cancel in Toronto. We were supposed to go, go up to Canada for that one show. And and so far everything else is still happening and, Oh, that's you know, good. Trying to trying to follow all the the COVID procedures, you know, um, as as closely and carefully as possible. And of course, um, you know, we're all vaccinated, boosted, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, just trying yeah. to trying to do our best to navigate in these crazy times. I think, you know, um, and I just think trying to be mindful and respectful of people, in their space, and and you know, um, masking up when we can and asking the audience to, you know, try to be kind and respectful to each other's space as well as much as possible. I mean, I think that's about all we can really do right now other yeah. than just cancel everything, totally. you know? So, and nobody wants that to happen, but, you know, of course, nobody wants to be getting sick or either or feeling like you're worried about that, you know, for, for people that might be coming to the shows. So, yeah, it's tricky, tricky to navigate, but... I think, um, yeah, I saw your, I saw your Toronto date on your, on your website and I'm Canadian too. And I, I know how bad it is up there you? right now. Yeah. I live in Nashville, but I, but I'm, I'm from Vancouver and, um, oh, cool. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I know how crazy it is up there right now. And I was surprised to see that that date was happening and apparently it's not. So there you go. Yeah, I know. I know. So like, I appreciate you even doing this virtually too. Cause like part of me is just like trying to lead up to it, you know, kind of going, Oh, it'd just be. Yeah. Such a bummer to 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 uh, roll the dice right before getting ready to leave because I leave yeah. Tuesday, I think. So you know, it's like oh, just so close, so far, so good. I would have ended up canceling because I think I have COVID right now. So no, really? Oh my gosh! I I, I will. I just talked to my best friend. She's she's got it too. Um, it's, yeah, it's happening. <laughs> unfortunately, 
I, I'm not sure yet, but I, but my daughter's friend has it and she was over there and, and their friend, their other friend, ha- like they have a little band and their friend also in the band got it. So everyone in the band has it. She's sick. She's tested negative, but, but we think that uh. she's probably got it. So anyway, so yeah, this last while has been, has been pretty intense for you. Like the, the whole Bela, uh, Carnegie Hall, Ryman swing, and I don't know how many other dates you're doing with, with them exactly, but that I saw the there was a, a film I don't know if it was done like um, for a TV broadcast or something but there's like an, the entire show from I think it's Carnegie although maybe it's the Ryman is up on YouTube now and on YouTube man, what, I think that's the Ryman I saw that that's my the manager Ryman. was like whoa the whole thing's up on here <laughs> yeah yeah it's incredible like can you tell me a bit about how like I know you played on on the record the Bluegrass Heart record and. And I know that you go way back with Bela, so you, so you've got that relationship going, and and you know a lot of those guys from that crew too. But uh, I mean, tell me a little bit about the prep involved as a musician, like as a as a mandolin player. There's other mandolin players up there, you know. Some of your heroes are up there, both on the mandolin and other yeah. instrument wise. Um, what's that like as a relatively young, like you're you're well not rel- like you're way younger than most of those people that are up there uh what's that like for you as a as a musician like both like psychologically but also um preparation wise how do you deal with it oh i mean it's unbelievable i don't think you ever get over the opportunity to play alongside your heroes you know even if you've done it quite a bit it's still just it's still just like one of those things where especially on a show like that i mean those those two shows were really special in that. So Bela took out, um, well, made the record. So for anybody that's not heard it, like the records, his first bluegrass album in 20 years and, and say bluegrass, Bela bluegrass, still very progressive bluegrass, yeah. but a bit of a return to the roots and, you know, him collaborating with, you know, guys like Jerry Douglas and Stuart Duncan and Sam Bush, Edgar Meyer, you know, um, Brian Sutton, these guys that he's made a lot of music with over the years. Um, but then also, you know, bringing in some of the younger generations, you know, myself, um, you know, Chris Bealey, who I know is a little, little bit older than me, Molly Tuttle, Billy Strings, you know, Dominic Leslie, like a lot of just really amazing. I mean, I could go on and on. And then you have like David Grisman, you know, and, and people like that on this project too. So it's a real um, coming together of generations in a cool way. So to get to be a part of that was really special because I grew up, you know, adoring Bela's albums like Drive and the Bluegrass Sessions and, and I love that drive you know, album. being so in- yeah. Oh, I mean, who doesn't? You know, it's just like if you love this kind of music, then, you know, it's it's just right up there at the top of the list of, of influential albums and, and uh, music that really inspired a whole new generation of people. So to get to be part of, of a project that kind of feels like a coming together of both those original guys that, that made those records. And then, you know, even for me, like Chris Seeley being one of my big heroes, he's sort of like the generation in between me and Bela, you know, yeah. so like you have sort of this, um, I don't know, this kind of, cool hybrid of, of folks on this project. So whenever the record came out, um, Bela had a tour. He had two tours that he did, two pretty large tours, one in September and then another one in, I guess, end of November through December. And the first one, uh, it was two different bands. So the first one was pulling people from the record. So it was me, um, Brian Sutton, 
Mark Schatz on, on bass, Brian on guitar, Michael on fiddle. Um, my husband, Justin, kind of playing multiple things. Uh, Justin Moses, so playing dobro, uh, twin fiddle, twin banjo, twin mandolin, and then um, uh, Bela. And so that first version of the band went out and did, you know, most of the month September, like almost three three weeks. And then in the second round of the tour, it was the Telluride House Band, which is, you know, Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas, Stuart Duncan, Edgar Meyer, Brian Sutton on that tour as well. And so And, um, and were, were you were you on that part or no? No, no. So they were okay. two separate tours. So okay. one band went out and did that and then then the other band went out. And so Bela's been out playing this music like crazy. We rehearsed a ton leading like before the tour that we did in September. So we had this opportunity to, you know, really work on this music because we had this tour. So I'd played on some of the music on the record, but only like five of the 19 tracks. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of great players on there and so much music. So it was really an opportunity to not, not just dive into the music that I'd already played on, but, to dive into the whole record and learn all of it. And so there was a ton of prep work before that tour. So thankfully I had already been able to go out on the road and play this music with Bela and kind of dive in. So by the time we got to the shows at the Ryman and Carnegie hall, and those were just two really special shows that, you know, kind of one time only sort of thing with both bands plus Chris Feely, Molly Tuttle and Billy strings. So right. it was like, a big cast, you know, between the original, well, I think the original band, Kelly Red House band, the band that went out in September, um, and then, you know, adding in those other three guests. And so this was a cool show, and those two shows were really cool in that, um, you know, it was a lot of people trading off different variations of different bands, you know, a couple things where it's like, oh, you know, both Stuart Duncan and Michael Cleveland are out on stage playing fiddle or, Oh, suddenly there's four fiddles on stage or like, Oh, here's, you know, something where Sam Bush and I both get to play at the same time on something, you know? So it's really unique and special um, in a way that I, you know, just, I think we were all kind of looking around going, this is so cool. This is so fun, you know? So I I feel really lucky. I got to be part of that. I take it all those things were totally planned, right? Like it wasn't just a matter of like you standing on the side of the stage going, oh, I'm going to jump in on this one. It was like. No, like, no, no. It was yeah, all yeah. planned. Yeah, for sure. Right. Very mapped out. <laughs> so, I mean, tell me about your mandolin pre- preparedness level. Like, do you have to, like, how how long does it take you to get ready? Maybe for that first leg of the Bela stuff where you didn't know all the stuff. and Like you knew the songs that you played on, but you had to kind of figure out the rest of the record. Um, that's a lot of stuff to learn. It's really complicated music. It's really, uh, it's really, I assume you, you're memorizing it all. Like you're not reading on those kind of gigs. So you need um, to yeah. have it all. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so walk me through a little bit of, of what it takes for you as a, as a musician in that situation to prepare and feel like really confident going to even to show up at rehearsals, feeling confident. Exactly. I think that's the big thing is like, you don't just go into rehearsal, not knowing anything. I mean, the goal is to show up to rehearsal <laughs> yeah. and already know all the music. And then therefore yeah. then, then you join up with all the other people who already know the music and you try to, you know, make it feel solidified, you know, into, you know, a band kind of dynamic where, and then, and then things change from there where it's like, okay, well, cool. We didn't, do it this way on the record, but there's an idea to have some kind of moment in the show where something opens up or somebody, you know, plays a different kind of thing or, or, you know, Bale is such a creative person that, you know, I love that he's not, 
he's not always like locked into, well, we recorded this way, so this is exactly how it has to be. You know, if there's an opportunity for something special to happen in the live setting that even is like, you know, arranged and orchestrated or whatever, then, you know, there's still always those options of how to make things even better, you know, on the table. So for me, it was like, yeah, taking the record versions of these songs and trying to really sit down with the recordings and just learn them. And, you know, that's for me, the process of that is listening to the record a bunch. And I was lucky because early on I have, Bela and I haven't really worked together like this before this until this project where I got to actually record on some of his music and really get in there and, and really learn and practice this music with him. Uh, but, but he did produce a record for me called Weighted Mind a few uh, years ago. And I, so I got to work closely with him, with him kind of wearing the producer hat, which is a different dynamic, but I knew enough to know that whatever Bela's, working on he's he's in it you know 200 percent and and i'm like that i love like if i'm gonna do something i love really trying to to dive deep you know and get in there so i love getting the opportunity to work with somebody that really cares like that that isn't just going to be like well that's good enough it's like no let's really try to to make this the best it can be so i think there's already that precedent that's set and knowing that okay we're going on tour with bela so better have your crap together. Yeah, <laughs> you man. Know? Totally. Gonna, and not not that I wouldn't for any gig, but I think there's already that standard that's set. That's kind of cool in that way that it's like, okay, we better we be, everybody is gonna show up knowing what to do, and and so that's yeah. exciting in that way. So for me, so anyway, I say all that to say I had worked with Bela in that um, working on my record. I think he knew that he knows that I'm serious about whatever project I'm working on and that, you know, from a studio standpoint, even like listening to mixes and things like that, or listening for particular things or hearing little edit glitches or whatever kind of stuff. I really kind of love doing that and love getting in there on, on uh, the kind of nitty gritty parts of the project. So he actually, when he was working on the mixes for this record, he mixed the whole record himself. And you know how it is. If you're working on something, you kind of just need a second set of ears. Oh Yeah. Yeah, oh, he, I didn't know he, that. Yeah, yeah, the whole record was recorded at his home studio, um, and uh, and yeah, mixed mixed oh. by Bela, and um, oh. and so he just had he had a few other musicians that he sent the tracks to to kind of listen and and give notes, you know, like oh, I think that right here the, you know, fiddle could be turned up, or I hear something kind of funny here, or you know, whatever. So I I was lucky to be one of the people that got to hear the record early and got to, Mm -hmm. you know, just make some mixed notes and give him my thoughts on on all that, um, which is bizarre to me. I don't know why he would (laughs) be one of those people, but, but, uh, but I got to hear this music, you know, in some ways pretty early, even before I was trying to learn it. And so I think part of it is like, okay, well, you get to really listen to the music when you're kind of in the process of trying to listen yeah. deep and talk about mixed notes. And so, so I'd already been spending some pretty serious listening time with the record before even trying to learn the stuff. And then, so I had a head start on a few tracks that I had actually played on. And then it's a matter of just actually getting the instrument out and kind of going, okay, so how does this crazy line on Slippery Eel go? Like how, you know, <laughs> now I got to learn this. And so yeah. I have a I have a program actually that I use quite a bit called Transcribe. You ever heard of that? No. What it's is it? It's essentially like 
it's essentially like a the amazing slowdowner or something. And I know there's a thousand ways you can do that these days, just slow things down. But it's yeah. I like it because you can actually like kind of like if you it shows you the wave file, like if you were in a Pro Tools session or something. But you could actually highlight certain sections of the tune. You can actually in the program like make some markers, like you could say in a Pro Tools oh. session where you might put like verse one or chorus. So for me, sometimes if it's something really kind of complex because I don't have charts on any of this stuff. I was just trying to kind of make my own way with it. Uh, eventually, Brian Sutton yeah. did make some like basic basic chord charts, but even just keeping track of like, you know, sections or things like that when I was practicing along, it's like you could see the whole wave file if you want, or you can zoom in or zoom out, but say you zoom out and this is the whole yeah. track, then you can go in and you can be like, okay, here I see that the fiddle solo is coming up or I see the mandolin solo is coming up. So I can right. just like make a couple little notes. Then if I went, okay, this section is always really hard or I keep messing the chords up here or I keep, yeah. I can like loop it so I can like highlight it and loop it and just practice one, one part of it for a while. So it's kind of a that's process called, of digging in slowly. That's called transcribe? It's called transcribe. Transcribe, yeah, with an exclamation. I gotta check mark. that out. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, I forget. It's like maybe fifty bucks or something, you know, to have the computer version. But it's really handy, a handy tool to have. That's I use super it a lot. Handy, yeah, you mean it's slowing it down, but it's keeping it in pitch, right? Yeah, the pitch stays pretty good. I mean, you know, obviously, if you go crazy with it, then you know, it's it's yeah, always it's, a little yeah. hard to really make sense of it. But um, but even just yeah, being able to slow something down enough to just check your work you know yeah. i mean it, it sort of speeds up the process if you're learning something it's like i go shoot we have way too many tools available to us these days to not take advantage <laughs> of it i mean could i sit could i sit down and learn it at full speed you know of course i think most anybody could if they just really you know want to spend time doing it but when you've got that much music to learn and you're really trying to digest it it's like it's so good to just use these kind of resources to be able to slow things down or loop things or uh, yeah. one of the things I didn't end up using it too much. I'm, I mostly played along with, with just the album versions of stuff, but Bela made everybody um, practice versions of the songs without the instrument they're playing on. Ooh. So say it was something Sam Bush played on because he yeah. recorded it all at his house and he's got all the files. He just muted Yanked the mandolin, out. for example, and could send a version that you could practice along with that like oh. you're the person in the band so so that's also a good I'll way to kind of work on stuff yeah. i know for real amazing um so you mentioned there's no charts were there ever charts like when you went in to do the session does is he charty at all or do you just show up and he's like hey here's a tune it's surprisingly casual for somebody okay. that's like that that in depth about everything um in that, you know, Bela doesn't, he, well, he laughed and he said, I can make charts, but nobody ever likes my charts. So he just didn't make any. And so it was kind of like, he's like, everybody rewrites their own charts anyway. So nobody's going to like my chart. So there might've been like a little thing here and there where it was like, here's this, this, I think I remember on um, a tune Strider I played on, there's this whole line at the end that's like, you know, you know, there's like all this kind of stuff to learn that everybody yeah. was going to play in, in unison. And I think he had a, he had some notation of it, but I don't even think he did it. I think maybe somebody, I, I don't even remember. 
because he doesn't really read music, you know, as a banjo player. It's not, it's more tab usually is what people deal with when they're talking about the banjo. So, and I mean, gosh, in the the bluegrass world, most of us just don't grow up using those kind of things. It's such a organic learn by ear. So, I mean, on the original tunes, um, uh, Schreider being an example, he was kind of writing it right up until the minute we went (laughs) to record it. So it was like, he sent a voice memo of him literally just playing some of the parts on banjo. And then, you know, it was very much like we had a rehearsal and then kind of worked out some kinks or he gave some ideas, but it was also everybody could show up and bring their own individual voice and ideas to, to what the kind of general dynamic would become of the song. And, um, you know, so for that, so for that record, your own lines and stuff for that record, you weren't showing up blind. Like you had, you had at least, gotten some voice memos or whatever so that you had some melodies oh, and yeah, some ideas sure. okay yeah. cool yeah yeah and there was a song call, uh, on the record called wills up where he had played it once with the telluride house band at telluride and there was a youtube video of them playing it at the time i think it was called seasick in the mountains it was just like a new tune that they had yeah. played and so there was you know this cell phone YouTube video from Telluride Festival of the band playing it that he sent and was like, hey, here's this tune. And so, you know, you just kind of learn what you can of it and try to show up and be, you know, fairly prepared. But then the rest of it's just kind of, you know, working out kinks, um, you know, as we as we went along. So you mentioned reading and I think you went to Berkeley, right? I did. Mm hmm. So did I. Um, so are, oh, so nice. do you read on the mandolin? Like, can you sight read and stuff? Very slowly. I didn't grow up doing it. And even when I went to Berkeley, I had never, I mean, it was just, uh, it was not part of my world at all. And and though I did do some of it there, my Berkeley experience was not necessarily your normal Berkeley experience, um, which is, I guess, a story in and of itself in that I did a thing called an artist diploma program. And it was just a little bit, uh, you know, kind of, dabbling in all these different areas and stuff like that. So I did, I did a little bit, but all that stuff was so over my head at that point. Cause I mean, I literally couldn't have even told you at that point where, you know, a B note was on the staff as crazy as that sounds at that point. I just had, I kind of wasn't preparing Surely to go to ear. Berkeley and then the, op- the, yeah. And the opportunity to go to Berkeley came up and then I kind of just dove in without having, it's not like I was like preparing for this Berkeley experience where I was practicing all my sight reading and things like that leading up to it. So it was kind of like, that was really a good opportunity for me to go, hmm, what are all the things I really should be thinking about and working on? And that was sort of like the beginning of me starting to work on setting reading as a goal. And it's something that, you know, I don't use all the time. So it's one of those things where I've, over the years, I've gotten to where I can do it. And I'm, better at it than I've ever been, but I'm also still terrible at it. You know what I mean? Compared to, you know, compared to like where I would like to be with it. Yeah. Yeah. When I was there, there wasn't really like the string emphasis that there is, that there has been in the last 15 or so years there. And, and they really like browbeat me. Like it was very much a jazz like approach to learning and they really browbeat the reading thing into me, even though I was trying to play like dobro and slide guitar and stuff. And I was sort of in weird tunings a lot of the time. And I was still trying to read anyway, because I, I thought it would be a fun challenge, I guess. But they they were That's really cool. insistent yeah. at that point that everybody had to read like really proficiently. I was a good reader back then. I, I'm terrible now, but. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I think, yeah, I think that, that around the time I went, it was right at the beginning of the American Roots program. And I think that they 
kind of really understood when people were coming in, this has not been a part of most of these people's worlds, you know, so we're here to kind of help set the stage for that and to kind of point them toward, you know, the value in these things while also understanding that, like, it's just not a tool that people use a whole lot in our world, more now than ever, I guess, before. And I would say, like, um, if somebody sends me a piece of music, uh, sends me the notation on something. It's not not helpful, <laughs> yep. you know. It, these days, it kind of it can be helpful, but at the same time, if you send me a recording, I'm going to be able to learn it, you know, a lot faster than than. Yeah. It's like the notation can be helpful for me to check my ear and make sure that I'm, you know, playing something right, um, you know, and might speed it up in some cases. But uh, yeah, it's still pretty low on my skill sets that I would say I'm really excelling. Yeah. So as far as, as far as your early stages of learning, like when you were a kid, I don't know how young you were when you started playing the mandolin, but uh, you grew up in Tennessee, right? So like, were you, were you surrounded by bluegrass? Were your parents into it? Is that, was that all that you like, were you one of those kids that was like super deep into bluegrass or, or were you into all kinds of different music? Oh, I mean, when I, I grew up in church hearing music there early on. And, and I say hearing music there, not like excellent piano and choir, more like Mountain Me kind of, you know, singing out of the hymn book. Anybody could get up and do a song, very casual, you know, as they say, listen to the words, not the way I sing it, kind of was a quote, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Where was this? What part of Tennessee did you grow up in? Um, so northern middle Tennessee, Birdstown is the town. So an hour Birdstown. north of Cookville. Yeah. Okay. So B Y R D. So up near Del Hollow Lake and all that. So, you know, just south of the Kentucky line. And it's a, you know, it's a beautiful part of Tennessee and, and, but it's the smallest County in Tennessee that I grew up in. And there's 900 people and no red light. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a tiny little spot. So, you know, my, my church experience even was just very casual in that way. You know, that, that music, the music was very casual. It wasn't, pre-planned or anything like that in in the church so so I grew up singing a lot in church and you know my brother and I started singing we'd get up and sing a song every once in a while and that kind of a thing and so music was part of my world early on in that way that I've sang ever since you know I was a little kid not 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 in a way that I would have ever thought about my voice in a serious way or really thought of myself as a singer, but everybody from my mom to my granny to whoever, you know, <laughs> sang, uh, but was it trying to be on stage, if that makes sense. So when I was eight, I got um, my first instrument. My dad had just recently bought a mandolin, was starting to go to some bluegrass jams. Um, and my mom's uh, uncle, my great uncle lived next door to us. So thankfully he was kind of that musical influence on my dad where he loaned my dad a guitar. My dad started learning just enough chords to be able to play for my brother and I when we would sing in church. And then my dad had always loved the mandolin and had thought that when he was a kid, he would have loved to have had one, but family couldn't afford one. And so he finally saved up enough money and, and bought one when I was probably around seven or so. And it was around that time that when he was going to those jams I have an older brother, and he was trying to get my brother Cody interested in playing. So I remember, um, you know, I have uh, like a really distinct memory of my dad sitting there with my brother, like showing him a couple of chords on the guitar, or like there was a banjo my dad had got somewhere and was trying to, you know, be like, well, here's a, here's how the banjo works, you know, rolling on the banjo. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, well, I want to play something too. Like if he's going <laughs> to play, I want to play because I just I. 
I adored my brother and wanted to be just like him, you know. So yeah. Um. So I got one. I got a fiddle for Christmas, and it was just a full size. It was too big for me to reach. My granny and aunt and uncle went in together and bought it for me. And so because the tuning is the same, and my dad had been learning to play the mandolin, he said, "Well, I know you can't really reach the end of the fiddle, but." Um, I could probably go ahead and show you a tune on the mandolin and you'd at least know where to put your fingers and we'll get you a smaller fiddle. But in the meantime, let me show you how to play a tune on here. And Good so idea, I was like, Dad. okay. And he taught me my first, I know he taught me my first mandolin tune and I just, I don't know. I, I kind of. What was it? What was the first? Went from there and just fell in love with it immediately. It was a tune called Bowl Them Cabbage Down. <laughs> Have you ever yeah. heard that? All right. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, wow, you know, one, cool. of the, one of the staple basic tunes. Um, this show is brought to you by the good folks at Isotope, who make incredible plug-in software for any music or dialogue recording situation. Among other things, they make a very unique suite of software called RX, which you can use to surgically repair almost any kind of issue in a recording. Whether it's removing electrical hum, unwanted noise, vocal plosives, or almost anything you can throw at it. I use Isotope RX on every mix in one way or another, and I love that I can get in there on guitar tracks that I'm doing and running through my crazy old tube amps and get rid of the hum and noise without affecting the actual tone of the guitar. You can buy their plugins outright or get a subscription to keep up to date on all their latest versions. Right now, they're offering listeners a 10% discount on any of their plugins when you use the code SOULPOD10 at checkout. So head on over to isotope.com slash soulpod, and you'll see the links right there to get the discount or an extended 30-day trial of their subscription service of Music Production Suite Pro. We're also brought to you this season by Black Mountain Picks. These are unique spring-loaded thumb picks that are super comfortable and adaptable. I've been using them for a couple years now, and I absolutely love them. They come in medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and with regular or extra tight spring tension. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. Also thanks to Ear Trumpet Labs, a workshop in Portland, Oregon, hand-building amazing-sounding microphones. These large diaphragm condensers combine state-of-the-art sound with eye-catching designs and the feedback control to excel live as well as in the studio. I am using their Edwina myself right now on this podcast. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com. And finally, the Hen House Hang. It's a four-day immersive recording experience right here with me at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville on September 19 to 22, 2022. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll put you up in a groovy hotel, feed you some glorious food, show you the ropes of recording roots and Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info on that at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then. Let's get back to the show. Did you get super obsessed with it right yeah. away? You were just... Okay. Did you have a way to um, to play with other people your age or anything? Or were you mostly playing like with your dad and his friends and stuff? Yeah, I was definitely just playing with my dad at first. And then, of course, you know, my brother eventually started. He never quite got into it like as obsessively as I did because he just... He was into all kinds of things, sports, and, you know, had lots of hobbies. But for me, for some reason, that just really, like, it just became my thing. And I knew pretty immediately, this is what I want to do with my life, you know. Really? Pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty soon. Like when you were, and when so, you were eight or nine? Yeah. I don't awesome. know. I just, we started, it's really when we got into bluegrass, I started going to these jams. And, you know, the community is such a beautiful community in the, within, you know, the, the bluegrass and folk old time world. It's just people are of all ages, you know, um, and in my case, 
being in such a rural area, we'd go to these jams, you know, like 30 minutes from our house or whatever. And it, it, there wasn't really any young people. I mean, it was literally like me and 60 and above, you know, like, yeah, yeah. and then mostly old dudes, you know, <laughs> like, just, so I would, um, but I was, there was never a time where, where those folks were not just loving and welcoming to me and saying, Hey, you know, come, come join our circle and let me sit there and, and chop along on the mandolin and, and, you know, include me even when I had no clue how to play really. Um, and I was learning a few tunes and so they'd say, well, do you want to play a tune? And maybe I would say, I know bowl them cabbage down and we play it cause I knew it, you know, yeah. and it's just such a wonderful, sweet thing. So I think that experience of just being able to have that where I could be welcomed into a circle where maybe it wasn't like, total virtuosic musicians, but these people could play. I mean, they could play and they knew the tunes and you, you know, and I learned, I learned the catalog. I learned all the standards from, from just constantly listening to it and being around it. So yeah, it became a big part of our life in that way. So it was it, for, for you, like as far as learning the, the vocabulary of, of the bluegrass, trad bluegrass stuff, it was more just like being around those people playing it. Like you weren't sitting there learning it off off records necessarily. It was more just like the experience of being around these people that knew the tunes. Well, it was both. It was both because we were pretty obsessed with it all. So it was like, yes, yeah. every weekend, you know, at least two jams a week on the weekend, Friday and Saturday night, were really? like always spent going to these, these jams that would happen. And then, um, you know, every week we would get a new CD, from somebody like, you know, we'd discover, uh, the, the only place to buy music back then. I mean, this was like, you know, pre Spotify and all that stuff. The only place that you could really buy CDs cause there wasn't a music store in my little hometown or anything, or really anywhere close to there was Walmart back then. They used to have a decent bluegrass section. And so really? we'd go in Walmart. Yeah. That's, yeah. We'd go funny. in Walmart and that's where we would find our CDs. And so, I remember I got my first Alison Krauss album there, my first Nickel Creek album, you know, and you might not find like the, um, you know, lesser known bluegrass folks there, but, but like, I mean, all the, the rounder Sugar Hill type catalog oh. stuff was actually in the store, was in the store back then. So, you know, we'd find that, or I remember us finding like the first Tony Rice albums that we got from some flea market or something, you know, finding just used things. You know, some unopened copy of something that came out like 20 years before I was born or something, but yeah. they happened to have all this music. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was just like we were just learning about all these people that became my heroes, you know, within those first few years of me playing. And I just fell in love with it and would look at those albums and think, wow, that's what I want to do. So, yeah, it was a combination of all that learning from the recordings and learning from uh, even books. I mean, I remember I had some tablature books and things like that early on. So I was, I was learning um, that way as well, where, you know, you were there, were there some, like you mentioned, Alison Krauss, were there some other like big ones for you that really stood out? Like whether it was, I don't know if you, if you were into uh, specific mandolin players or not back then, like what was, as far as the mandolin goes, were, were there some main influences? I guess probably um, Adam Steffi would be, one of them because you were oh yeah in well Cross, right yeah absolutely yeah Adam one of my biggest influences ever uh, especially because I feel so 
madly in love with that band and those albums. I Union mean, they Station. were like my biggest heroes ever. Oh yeah. I mean, like yeah. that was, if I, if I really had like a, to pick one hero or one obsession, I mean, Allison and those records were, really? were it for me. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The earliest mandolin I really remember hearing was probably Dole Lawson. Uh, okay. Because his, in Dole Lawson and Quicksilver, they made, um, you know, he has a ton of albums, but also a lot of like four part harmony gospel singing um, that I remember, you know, since I started singing and hearing music in church, I remember that being some of the first music that we tried to learn to sing even before I was really playing mandolin. So I remember hearing them, the mandolin in that context, you know, Um, and then of course, yeah, I started playing about a year after playing, got, you know, an Allison, album adam steffi um of course sam bush uh there was a band called blue is a band called blue highway that's you know was one of my all-time favorite bands still who's is. the mandolin player in that band sean lane who oh, yeah, you know okay. he's such a ridiculous singer and songwriter that sometimes people don't always talk about his mandolin playing but he's a great mandolin player um mm-hmm. you know ricky skaggs and then of course later right David Grisman and, and Mike Marshall. Yeah. And, and of course we bought the first Nickel Creek album because Allison produced it. And I was obsessed with Allison. So we got that album. And then next thing I know, I'm hearing, you know, Ode to a Butterfly, the opening track on that album and hearing mandolin, like, wow, I've never heard anything like this before. So, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's just, you know, Ricky Skaggs, the list kind of goes on and on. He's pretty, he's incredible too, that guy, man. He, he plays his ass off. What about John Reichman? Were you ever into Reichman? John's music I didn't actually discover till much later on. Um, and yeah, he's, he's an incredible player and just like his tone. And of course he's got this like, you know, infamous mandolin that everybody in our community loves. He's got a, as far as the lore goes, he's got like one of the best ones. So he's a friend of mine from, from Vancouver. So I've played with him a bunch. Oh yeah. Awesome. Well, I was going to say, I've gotten to know him a little bit in recent years and he's just such a sweetheart of a person too. So I've loved what opportunities I have had to play with him now as an adult. It's been awesome. Yeah. I think, I think anytime he hangs out with Chris Dealey, he has to watch his back and keep his mandolin uh, very secure. I know. Chris, (laughs) Chris wants that mandolin. (laughs) (laughs) He knows it. Um, For you now, like songwriting is such a big part of what you do too. Like at what point did you start writing songs? I started writing tunes pretty early on. And I remember my brother and I even wrote a couple, you know, just simple vocal tunes back when my dad even started, you know, kind of 
coming up with song ideas. So, you know, some of the early writing I did uh, was sort of within the family, either me doing something or my brother and I wrote a couple things together or my dad would mostly write the song and I would maybe steer the music a little bit, you know, um, early on. And then it was really, though, so I'd always written a little bit, but then it was really when I got into my late teens that I started feeling more of an urge to just write lyrics and write things that I wanted to sing about. I remember like one time kind of looking at my list of songs on a set list or something early on and kind of thinking, man, all these songs, I like these songs, but I don't really feel like they're things that I really connect to saying or singing about in a certain way. So that was like really when I started thinking I should write some stuff that's like things I want to sing about or stories I that I want to tell. And so it was really kind of leading into my late teens, you know, early 20s that I think really trying to write in a way that felt authentic to the kind of music that I would make if it were just me kind of started mm-hmm. to become more of a desire. I guess was working with Allison Krauss. Like I, I know you worked with her on on. I don't, I, I don't think it was your first record, but like your first sort of major record was her. Was she encouraging in that way? Because I mean, that's such a thing. Oh, such a part of her world. Was she? Was she sort of pushing you to write material for that record too? No, not really. At that point, okay. you know, Al, Allison is. She's always been somebody that's been an unbelievable interpreter of other people's songs. And so she doesn't really write herself and she has a, but she has a way of like finding these amazing songs, you know, um, much like, you know, her hero, my hero, Tony Rice was in that, you know, he maybe wrote a little bit, but not much, but he had a way of like choosing the songs that when you hear either Allison or Tony do, it doesn't matter that they didn't write it. You'd think that it's absolutely theirs, but they have a way of, of making them their own. And so so not really. I mean, she never, um, I don't know, I guess she and I really haven't talked about songwriting very much, but the importance of a song speaking to you and meaning something to you. I remember the first time that I played her something off my Daybreak album, which was my second rounder album, um, this song, All Because of You, that I had written. I remember her being excited about that one because I had written it and her being encouraging in that way that I was exploring okay. that and being like, cool. Now, like this is, you know, her, 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 you know, sort of saying, yeah, keep following that, you know, mm-hmm. but it was more probably after I sort of was starting to decide that was something that I felt like I needed to do. And then I remember her being encouraging about that. Right. Right. So you worked with her on the secrets record, right? Well, not as a producer per se. Um, she was she was involved in the process in that when I first signed with Rounder Records, I mean, I, Rounder was the label I dreamed of being on as a kid because Allison was on that label and Tony Rice and so many of my heroes, you know, had, sure. had recorded for that label. So I signed my record deal pretty early on, but it was a few years before I actually, you know, ended up getting in the studio and doing anything. And at the time when I signed, Allison was going to produce the record and that was something we were talking about. But then, you know, she made this record with Robert Plant and all this, this, these various projects were happening where she was kind of tied up and it became clear that we weren't going to actually be able to, to get it done anytime soon. So she kind of just encouraged me like, you know, I don't want to be the reason that you're not able to get this done. Why, you know, why don't you work with Ron Block, 
who's been a longtime member of Allison's band. So Ron was actually the, um, you know, we, we, we did that record together and Allison, you know, suggested some songs and was still part of the process in, in a way that, you know, she, she was sort of on the outside, you know, giving some thoughts and stuff like that. But, but I really have Ron to thank for, you know, being the person that really got in there and helped me make that record. Yeah. Jumping ahead to, to your recent record, which I know just came out like probably a week or two before the pandem- pandemic really hit. But um, so, so 25 trips. Um, I love the way that it's sort of like, you know, there's definitely bluegrass elements to it, whether it's the vocals, some of the harmonies are kind of like that. There's some really traditional stuff in there, but, but there's also some really progressive kinds of music and there's cool, there's a lot of cool, like textural things that I'd imagine that was something that you really wanted to kind of, you know, get into some different directions in the studio. Can you tell me about how that record came together and, and how, what the intention was from the beginning, whether that was something that you wanted to branch out and really go in some different directions or not? Yeah, I knew that with 25 Trips, I wanted to make a record that still held true to some of the things that I had discovered and learned through my process of making the record that I made with, with Bela, Weighted Mind, mm-hmm. which was sort of a bit like a singer-songwriter offering surrounding mandolin and vocals. I mean, that was kind of the goal with that record to really explore my songwriting and put that at the forefront of it. But at the same time, with all the the pieces stripped away to where it was mostly mandolin and vocals, um, yeah. it changed the approach that I took to my ranging of the songs, I guess, and thinking about trying to really put my voice, whatever that was, like uh, artistic voice, should I say, yep. at, at the center of it um, in a way that maybe I hadn't explored with my more bluegrass records because there's, you know, this this element of when you're playing in the bluegrass context, um, it's so band dynamic where you play rhythm and then you have a moment for your solo and there's sort of a tradition to the, you know, the song structure and things like that. And so kind of stripping all that away just made me explore more outside influences of other genres or, or my songwriting, like things that I was writing didn't necessarily feel like bluegrass per se in that traditional sense. So I, I knew that from a songwriter standpoint, I still wanted that element to be at the forefront of, of what became 25 Trips. Um, but I didn't want to necessarily just make another record that was so sparse and stripped right. down. I wanted to kind of add back in the the element of having more of a full band sound, but to think about the arranging of it still being woven between my instrumental self and my vocal self. Um, and then also use the studio in a different way rather than just film like I had to go in and track everything simultaneously like live and it being like okay well somebody else is going to come in and sing harmony or somebody else is going to play guitar on this because you know that's just what we do i kind of wanted this to be a combination of some of that but also having some things where we sort of just started with mandolin and voice and then layered and built things in the studio so some of it was like just starting with the mandolin and the voice not unlike Weighted Minds, but then being able to kind of layer from there. And some of that was me layering. Some of it was bringing in other people to layer, you know, and kind of um, one piece at a time, almost like slow painting rather than just going in and everybody does their thing, you know, and that's what it becomes, which there's something really special about that too. But there's also 
something kind of interesting, I think, about being able to go, we're going to start here, and I'm not sure what this is going to become. So, okay, now let's add bass. Hmm, what if we put pedal steel on this? Oh, but more like indie steel, textural stuff. Well, let's try that, okay? What happens if we add piano to this? You know, that kind of a thing. Um, So it left a little bit of, like, artistic freedom in that way to kind of explore um, as one piece got added, then kind of step back and go, where are we at now? Do we need more? Do we need something else? Maybe we need some cool harmonies, you know, that kind of a thing. So that was always the intention? Like, you went in with the intention of recording the song kind of solo with with fully planning to bring stuff in, but you didn't know what it would be? Yeah, somewhat. I mean, there were a couple of tracks where I did... Um, um, a song called Poison, um, The Last Minute, How Long. There's a few things off the record that we did go in with a particular band in mind. So we had yeah. Stuart Duncan and Brian Sutton, Justin Moses, my husband, uh, Vic yeah. Krauss. And we knew that was kind of going to be the core band and that these would be tracks that are cut live with that energy. Okay. But then there's there's tracks like 25 Trips itself or Escape, yeah. uh, you know, even what became beautifully out of place or middle of the woods, those were tracked with like some live elements, but then also layered on top of that. So it was really this kind of combination of some songs, you know, we knew we're, this is what it's going to be. You know, this band is, we're going to, we're going to track it and there probably won't be much layering after the fact, unless it's just some harmony stuff or whatever. Um, And then some things where it was literally, you know, kind of like, well, I'm not sure I know what this is going to become yet. So let's just start building and see what happens. And then, you know, you kind of get surprised as the process goes along or, or, you know, one piece being added makes you like informs what the next piece of the puzzle is, you know? And, and some, and so, and then sometimes you might try something and go, Oh yeah, that didn't work. Like, let's just take that off. Or like, you know, you're trying, just trying things, you know? which was fun to kind of have that freedom. Some of the string stuff, like Beautifully Out of Place, does have that really cool, the, the string sectional sort of thing. Was that something that, like, did you kind of arrange something for the, for them to play, or did you just bring people in that you thought would be good at that? And, like, how, how organic was that? Very organic. Yeah, that whole section. Okay. So I remember being like, you know, I had the plan for, so, so Beautifully Out of Place was tracked with... Um, Myself, Victor Krauss, a guy named Mike Seal, who uh, was touring with me some at the time, playing guitar, electric guitar. And then Justin, my husband, was there, though I think he didn't end up actually tracking that with us. And then a guy named Alex Hargraves um, playing fiddle. And so there was the basic like thing of the song, and I was like, okay, well, the song's like, it's in E, but then the chorus goes to G, you know, it changes the yeah. key center and then the soloing happens. But I was like, but I want to get back to E. And I think the way to do that is through this, you know, it needs to have this really like flurry of a moment. You know, it's like such a, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes how these people understand my poor descriptions of what I'm looking for is, you know, beside me, a lot of it <laughs> is, is me going, okay, so I think the guitar can lead this moment, whatever this is. And like some kind of, I said, thing where like, um, you know, if you can end up on like a, a a 
B note, I think, you know, I said, which will, will work because there's that connection between the B note yeah. and, and E and G. So I was like, if you can just like make some sort of crescendo line that winds yeah. up here, then that okay. allows me to land back here. So a lot of that was actually in the moment where I was like sitting there with Mike and we were trying some stuff kind of ripping back and forth. And then he just starts like playing this really cool thing and the line he played was all him that wasn't me saying play this exact thing it was just me kind of guiding the process and then he played this thing and i'm like yes that's awesome okay then we'll just all come back in you know to the to e again and be back in 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 that key and so then with somebody like alex uh who was playing all those Mm -hmm. string parts are him he just layered on top so then it was yeah so then it was like hey so now if you can go back in and like stack some things. So I want this to feel fat in this section. Can you go back in and stack some things? And then I was like, literally just like, give me some, you know, um, I, I don't even remember how I explained it to him, but just like some, some, you know, where it just literally feels <laughs> like we're just like, you know, <laughs> yeah. And, and like, he just went in and started trying stuff and playing stuff and, and it just started to come together in this really organic way. So yeah, none of it uh, was cool was like scripted pre pre thought out in a scripted way, but there was the general yeah. concept of what the what the goal was. And then okay. you just choose the right people who know how to decipher my crazy talk. Um, you know <laughs> the drum stuff is really interesting too, because it's it's not you're not at all relying on the drums like as the timekeeper. It's more of like a textural uh palette thing. Um, the drums who- were all the last piece of the puzzle, believe it really? or not, which is so weird wow. um, in that, you know, <laughs> I think we weren't sure. We kind of made the record without drums to start with yeah. and then just started realizing, well, something like Middle of the Woods could be really cool with drums. And I'd be really yeah. anxious to hear that. And uh, as a mandolin player, that's something that I've it's tricky business in a way because my instrument is is yeah. the rhythmic element in so much of the music that I make and so it has to be the right fit both the right person to play on it and also yeah. to make sure that it's not just completely like covering up what I do totally. so yeah. so it's like you know I've always been a little hesitant to figure out how that that could fit in but also at the same time if you're hearing something and and it sort of is just begging for it then there's that part of like, well, I don't want to be scared to go there either, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was actually the last thing. And so then it was like, so well, who, we who plays that. the, who does the drum stuff on there? Uh, a guy named John O'Ricks who, uh, oh, okay. I know with John the Wood o, yeah. Brothers. Yeah. Wood Brothers. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, John o, John O's amazing. And, you know, I don't know that, that everybody, I don't know that just anybody could go in and add drums on top of something that wasn't cut to a click. Yeah. That wasn't. Oh, so like, you weren't you weren't cutting to a click ever. Um, no. Well, you know what we did is, uh, in order to keep things feeling really organic, so like beautifully out of place and middle of the woods was not cut to a click. Those were just those were just tracked, and so those are a couple things that have drums on them. Something like twenty five trips, or uh, there's a track called Waiting um, that we added drums to. Yep. Those those have um, parts that kind of speed up and slow down, and it's not just like one groove or one tempo throughout the whole song. So on a song like um, 25 Trips, 
I knew that if we cut it to a tra- uh, to a click and, and we just tried to straighten it all out, it would lose some of its magic, kind of. Yeah. So what w- I was able to do is I worked with this really great engineer um, as my co-producer on this record, Shawnee Gandhi. And um, Shawnee and I, on a track like that, those couple tracks were ones that we built from the ground up. And so we went in, and I would actually just play and sing at the same time and find um, a performance, like like try a few things and find one that felt right. So like, okay, here's the right organic way I would play this. Like if I'm slowing down in this vocal section or speeding up a little bit in this instrumental section because it needs to lean forward a little bit, then that's sort of the way this song needs to feel. Then she would go in and she actually built a moving click. Ah, wow. So so she would like kind of, take my live performance and then find a, a moving click. And then what that allowed us to do is for me to do multiple passes that had the same, where I would just kind of follow this moving click and we could try stuff that way, but sort of have a template that we were working off of. And so then whoever, you know, came in to overdub on this essentially could could choose to use our moving click if they so wished or just right. go, this is too weird. I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> yeah. Like, Jono is, Jono is insanely musical and, yeah, and totally. you're, you're right. Like one of the few people that could probably jump in at that point when everything else is finished and actually be an effective percussionist more than a drummer. Absolutely. And make it feel like he was there in the room with us when it happened, you know, it does. So, it feels exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he, uh, he definitely, you know, did an amazing job. And uh, I know that's always just like the weirdest task to ask somebody to add drums as the last thing. After the fact. After the fact. But, you know, it's one of those things that I actually think, you know, it probably made it, um, made it feel more organic in some ways that what, then, then it might have had, we had drums and then I'm sort of following that. You know what I'm saying? As opposed to yeah. having something sort of follow the the natural rhythmic inflections that as a mandolin player I would have, which is usually, you know, kind of more on the front or more. It's just a different kind of thing. So, course, um, yeah. so yeah, it was, you know, it all kind of came together, but it was all just very organic in some ways. And, and you know, up until the very end, kind of going okay, yeah, we think we are going to add drums to Escape after all. And we are going right. to, you know, see what that's <laughs> like. And was Shawnee somebody that you'd had your your eye on for, uh, like, obviously her uh, ability to record acoustic instruments is is well known through her work with Gary Pachosa and people like that. But was she somebody that you thought would be a good collaborator in the creative sense? You know, Shawnee and I had worked together a little bit um, and of course I knew her through Gary and of course Gary yeah. having recorded all of my favorite albums over the years yeah. and all the Allison albums I've loved and things like that, you know, um, obviously, you know, Shawnee has learned so much from him in that way. And, uh, and, you know, at the time I was trying to figure out who I was going to work with and I was talking to a few different people and I kind of didn't have like a specific, I didn't have a Bela in mind. You know what I mean? I didn't have like another yeah. artist or somebody that I knew or, or a producer per se that I just thought, oh, is the perfect person for this. And so I kind of thought, well, I've already got a pretty good idea of the songs and things like that, that I think I want to do. Um, but sonically, I want to be able to feel like I can explore and I want somebody that can really, like if I want to layer a bunch of things or I want mm-hmm. to have some like, 
ethereal type sounds. I want somebody that I know knows how to understand my vision for that, you know, because I'm not going to mm-hmm. be able to say, oh, you know, I can more now having worked through making a record like that. But at the time, especially, I was just kind of like, well, you know, I want somebody that kind of understands how to help me put that together. And so I started, you know, thinking about different people. And, you know, when I finally started thinking about Shawnee, I was, she was up at, living up in New York for a short period of time. Um, around the time that I I made this uh, decision to work with her. And so I I was up in New York um, doing a show and we ended up just grabbing a coffee to kind of talk about the idea, you know, of, of possibly working on this project together. And I actually had kind of thought it might be fun to record in New York and just get out of Nashville and do something different. We ended up, she ended up moving back to Nashville at the time. So it just made more sense to do it here. But um it was one of those things where there was a few different things about thinking with working with her. And then we met and it's just, you know, she's, she's only a few years older than me. I mean, she's, she's um, young. She's a woman, like she's extremely talented. There was just a camaraderie, even just in our having coffee together. That was like, man, we would have fun making a record together. We would really have fun. And like, I know she's like, excellent at what she does and not only that but just the you know the vibe I could tell was going to be really good and so that's when I was kind of like um hmm, yeah I think that was that was the first thing that I got like super excited about you know um and of course she was she was down to dive in and and do you know jump on board and, and make this record with me and so um you know little did I know just you know how how strong her work ethic even was, but I mean, she's, she's definitely, you know, cares about things being as good as they can possibly be. And, you know, every little bit of, you know, the tiniest tweak on the mic, you know, all those kind of yeah. things that, you know, I'm obsessing over my world and she's obsessing over her world and we just kind of That's get good. each other in that way. So it was really fun to get to work with her. Yeah. And were you guys bashing bashing the ideas around about like, oh, uh, you know, a string section would be cool here or drums would be cool here? Was that a thing that you were collaborating on a lot? Yeah, I mean, the whole process was really uh, so collaborative in that way that, cool. um, you know, she often says, well, you know, uh, you know, you're you're the musician like you really know this. But she she doesn't almost give herself enough credit in that she really has an unbelievable ear. You know, she's not necessarily a you know she grew up playing classical piano a little bit you know just um Mm -hmm. through her her family dynamic and stuff like that and that being part of her upbringing but but she wouldn't consider herself a musician but she's got an unbelievable ear so she can she can say you know what if you tried this harmony part you know she's Mm -hmm. she's um She's not somebody that, you know, would uh, ever act like she could sing, but she can't, you know what I mean? So it's like that was fun to work with somebody that um, definitely kind of understood what the goal was or or like our our idea of what was good or who uh, might be a good fit for something actually locked into place pretty, pretty well. Cool. Where'd you guys, where'd you guys work? Where'd you do all this? recording we did a lot of it at the time she was renting a studio um and you know she's more of a mix engineer than anything i mean that's really what her her world is most of the time um but she uh she had a a small half of a studio that she was renting in berry hill 
okay. from this guy, Marshall Altman. I don't know if you know Marshall, but uh, no, he's just another producer, engineer in town, songwriter guy. But uh, so she had her mix room and then this one tiny little extra room um, yeah. that we just kind of set up shop in. And that's where we we started building the tracks that were just me and her. That's where we did okay. all of that stuff. And then the stuff that we tracked live, we did it at Southern Ground, which of course is no more now, and a studio called, place. called Addiction Sound. Oh yeah, Dave Kalmuski's place. Yeah, exactly. So we did Canadian. Uh, yeah, exactly. So those were the two studios that we did the tracking, and then the rest of okay. it, you know. And I, I recorded a few things at home. You know, it was kind of some of it was sort of yeah. all put together. Um, well, it sounds amazing. Thank you so much. That's been out for a while. You're going out with Corey Wong. You've been doing this stuff with Bela. Is there plans afoot to do another another solo record? Yeah, I mean, I've already been recording some. So yeah. it's like okay. part of me is just like I've got lots of new music um, in terms yeah. of not, not lots of new songs and ideas. So I've, you know, already been tracking a little bit. Part of me is like, you know, I've just been trying to have the mindset of just you know, working on stuff, even if I'm not quite sure yet what the overall plan is for it or how it's all going to come together or whether everything I've recorded will be on one project or multiple things, but just, yeah, trying to, um, it tends to take me a long time to make records and I I wish that wasn't the case. I think I just care so much about it and I'm sort of, I'm sort of like one of those people that I don't want to just, you know, throw something out there just for the sake of just throwing something out there. I, I really want it to feel like it's a, you know, legit offering. But at the same time, we also live in a world where music is consumed so differently these days. And there's something to be said about, you know, feeling like it's okay to, to put something out, not feel like, um, you know, your whole musical expression and artistic, you know, career hinges upon it. <laughs> right. you, know, you know what I'm saying? So, I do. I know exactly. For me, I'm trying to find that balance between the part of me that really just loves like the the story of a full album offering and and still caring about that and and what I'm putting forth and wanting to make sure that it's me trying to give the best of what I have, but also, you know, um, not just feeling like like I can never do anything either because that can that can be a paralyzing thing place to get into where it's hard to ever get anything done because it never feels good enough to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's the beauty of recording yourself at home. You can sit there for, for months. I know. Laboring over every note. (laughs) I know. I know. Uh, Well, I know you got to run and uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. It's been great to, talk to you and hear about all this stuff oh my and, God. and I love well, what you're doing and, and I really best of luck out that. there on the, on the road. Thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate, you know, all the, the great questions and uh, hopefully we'll cross paths in person one of these days. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I hope to see your show uh, here when you're playing. I think you're playing at Brooklyn Bowl, right? We are. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, hopefully I'll see you there. Okay. Awesome. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Sierra. I appreciate okay, it. Okay. Thanks, right. Steve. See you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Folks, thank you so much for listening. That was my conversation with Sierra Hull. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a blast speaking with her. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is produced at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee by Steve Dawson. Please remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. 
You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this season, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, Isotope, and Spectra 1964. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.